This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. We have chosen a tough line of work. What you do every day takes its toll. And it doesn't matter the role you have, there's an impact to your emotional well-being. Today is Thursday, April 30th. I'm John Dunn. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It's the highs, the lows, the wins, the losses. Over time, these things build up, and it's easy to bury them. I mean, arguably, we often bury them on purpose as a defense mechanism, but as we know, that can make things worse. This individual wellness, it's something we think has been ignored for too long. Yes, compassion fatigue, it's mentioned, but have we committed enough as a movement to bring it to the forefront where it truly belongs? We have decided that this will be a focus of the podcast. It will be an ongoing series where we'll bring you some experts. We'll have some tough but necessary conversations about how we can make this the priority that it needs to be. And right now, we're in an unusually difficult time. We're having to find ways to save lives faster with new ways of thinking, and that's pressure. Whether you're an essential employee who has to be out there or someone who's now working from home, these things, these changes, have impact on us. The bottom line here, we cannot solve issues effectively until we identify them and talk about them out loud. I'm Amanda Paris. I'm the shelter director at Southern Pines Animal Shelter in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I started working at Southern Pines about, oh gosh, it's close to 10 years ago now. I uh, started working at the shelter part-time and just kind of fell in love with it and never left. At the time when I started, uh, we were taking in somewhere around 12,000 animals a year and euthanizing somewhere between 80 and 90% of them. On day one of the shelter, you had to help euthanize an animal because otherwise you just like weren't cut out for it. The thing that I think has really become apparent to me is that during all those years when there was so much at stake, right? And there were so many lives to save and there was so much to do. I didn't really ever slow down to deal with the impact that that work had on me um, and my emotional health and my physical health and my personal relationships. 10 years later, trapped at home, this is really the first time that I don't have anything else to like focus my energy on. And I'm, I'm feeling it, you know, I'm starting to really understand the impact this has had on my life and the, the trauma that it's left me with. And I know a lot of people experience it differently, but my trauma manifests as um, really severe nightmares. And so I've seen an increase in that. I think just because my attention is, is more focused on it and I don't have distractions. It's like, I'm not going to be ignored anymore. So we're going to have to deal with this now. And definitely doing that in isolation makes it extra challenging. So many of us right now are dealing with the like really long-term repercussions of compassion fatigue and trauma. I think it's important for me to not feel like I'm putting emotional burdens on others, but sometimes that's what you need to do to like get through it. I don't know that we talk as much about the sort of like darker side of that, the the real trauma and PTSD that people face. And so just creating somewhere, I don't know, some sort of mentorship where we're supporting people and giving them a forum in which to discuss the things that they're dealing with and figure out if it's um, normal and are they being treated appropriately and do they have the support that they need. 
what's really important right now for me and for a lot of animal welfare people is just to kind of like be kind to each other and not just each other but to ourselves this is maybe a new a new thing that people in animal welfare and, and other industries too are going to have to innovate how could we have been kinder to ourselves how could our organizations have better supported us how could we have protected ourselves and then what can we do with that information and that sort of like soul searching to protect the future generations of animal welfare leaders? Certified compassion fatigue educator and coach Jessica Dolce. She focuses specifically on helping the people who work with animals. Now, she herself has been working in this field for about 20 years in animal sheltering and running her own pit bull advocacy organization. She decided in 2014 that she was so passionate about this element of what we do that she wanted to make it her focus. In this time when we're finding ourselves dealing with more than what is already an overwhelming amount of stress and emotions, who better to hear from than a pro? Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, we made the title for this episode, Compassionate Badassery. And I'm sure people are wondering just what that is. So maybe a great place to start would be for you to explain yourself and why you use that term. I'm thrilled to be here to talk with you and to everyone who's listening because you all are my heart. I love all of you so much and what you're doing. And it's really my privilege to do whatever I can to support you all um, doing the really challenging work that you're doing. So... I came up with this idea of practicing compassionate badassery as a way to talk about how we approach this work. And it's really um, it, applicable right now in COVID-19. So I'll kind of, I'll tell you a little bit about what I mean when I'm saying that, and then we can get into maybe how do we apply this idea in the circumstances that we're in right now. So practicing compassionate badassery is really shorthand for taking care of yourself while you're caring for others. That would be the most simple way of putting it. But the reason why I cho chose the phrase um, compassionate badassery, the badassery part is that it takes a lot of courage to show up with an openness in your heart to help those who are suffering and to do it without being able to control the outcome of your efforts. That's a really challenging thing to do. It takes a lot of courage to show up and do that. And the only way that you can do that is by being really well. You need to have a lot of capacity, inner and external resources to be able to show up that way. And when we don't have that, that's what leads us right into compassion fatigue and burnout and anxiety and all kinds of things because we're showing up and we're trying to help, but we don't have the resources that we need to really do it um, well and sustainably and in a way that doesn't cause harm to ourselves or ultimately to the animals in our care. And so we really need to be taking care of ourselves. And I think that it actually takes more courage to choose to take care of ourselves than it does to show up to do the work that we do. And that's because we get a lot of positive reinforcement for helping. We're told our whole lives to be selfless, to help others, that that's the best thing that we could be, right? We're, we praise helpers as heroes. And so 
it actually takes a lot of guts to say, yes, I want to help, but not to the point where I harm myself, not to the point where I lose myself. Um, it takes a lot of courage to say, I'm going to set healthy boundaries. I'm going to limit the amount that I do because I need to save something for myself. Um, and I think that that actually takes even more bravery. And so practicing compassionate badassery is really about making difficult choices every single day for caring for ourselves in a way that allows us to keep showing up to do ethical and effective work for the long haul. Um, and it's really not, it's not a label. Like I love people call themselves badasses and that's great. I'm not a badass. I, it's never a label that I would uh, put on myself. And it's not like a static place that we arrive at where we're officially a badass. It's more like practicing making these challenging choices over and over. So we're all going to make choices that lead us away from caring for ourselves while we care for others. All of us will every day. But this is about intentionally choosing as often as we can to practice this idea of investing in ourselves while we're taking care of so many others. So it really is a practice. It's really about making choices, not a, you're not a badass or not a badass, you're just practicing this. Uh, and that's the way that I think about this concept um, as a way of kind of giving us a little bit of a direction, a compass, you know, where do we wanna to move towards when we're making these choices? And for me, it's always, I wanna to move towards practicing compassionate badassery. I mean, I think we all know what compassion fatigue is, or at least we think we do. We certainly hear the term, conferences, there are books, but I'm interested to hear your definition. Um, compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue might be thought of as a really intense physical, mental, um, spiritual uh, depletion. So it's really your tank is very empty and it depletes your energy and your desire and your ability to be caring. So you don't get compassion fatigue because you stopped caring or you don't care. You get it because you care very, very, very much. And if you get to the point of that intense depletion, it's you're just not capable of accessing the kind of empathy, compassion, hopefulness, sensitivity uh, that you need to be able to do this work well. So you can become very desensitized, numb, cynical. You know, it's like the crusties. You get real crusty. It's the, it's the old all people suck, you know, kind of mentality that we all fall into at some point in this. Uh, and you're you're really not able to see animals or people as individuals anymore. So you're just becoming very desensitized. Um, and this can happen because of that intense depletion. It can also come about because of kind of the, the chronic way we see the same problems over and over and over again. So for each person or animal, it may be the first or second time they're experiencing something. But for us, it's the 50th time that week that we've seen this exact same problem. And so we really, if we're not well-resourced internally, if we're not supported, it's going to be more and more difficult to show up with a sense of compassion and being able to be present for that individual um, and see them for who they are and meet them where they are in that moment. 
So compassion fatigue shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, and then there's the trauma exposure that we experience. Um, and that's a kind of a, an added component of compassion fatigue. And depending on what your role is as a helper or caregiver, you may or may not be exposed to a lot of trauma. But I think what's happening right now in COVID-19 is we're all being exposed to trauma on some level on a global scale. So you just used the term well-resourced there. Can you explain what that means? It's both internal and external resources. So when you're first looking a lot at a lot of compassion fatigue um, help, you're going to see things geared very much towards self-care. And that's an individual approach and it's absolutely necessary. We have an ethical obligation to take care of ourselves so that we can do high quality work However, the research is really, really clear that we can't do this on our own. We need the support of our organizations, our teams, people external to us, helping to create the conditions where we can really be well on the job. So external resources might be anything from, you know, having a counselor or a therapist or good friends in your corner to having a really supportive supervisor or a work environment that um, allows the conditions um, to support well-being for the staff. So reasonable hours, you know, reasonable pay, psychological safety on the job. Internal resources are things that we have a little bit more control over, so it's always a good place to start there. And that's really about building your own toolbox of um, self-regulation skills, being able to soothe your own nervous system, particularly in the face of really um, upsetting uh, and difficult circumstances, uh, and in the face of suffering. Having a self-care practice, you know, really knowing what that means for you. Uh, it can look like um, reaching out to get the kind of support that we need. And we're so dependent on each other for our resilience and our well-being which is partially why we're struggling right now, because we're also separated and we really need each other. So internal resources can be really anything from working with your thoughts and cultivating a in very intentional uh, perspective to um, working with your emotions and cultivating self-compassion. This is really about creating that kind of space where you hold yourself with a lot of kindness and you have some skills to work with the stressful circumstances that you're finding yourself in day after day after day. Uh, you're a professional at this, but I know that that doesn't mean that you don't need help. I mean, you're absorbing a lot of this type of energy to help people, and that's uh, quite a burden, I would guess. So how do the pros get through this? Like, what are the things that you turn to, the structure that you've built to keep yourself whole? So I, I mean, I have a support crew. Like, I have my own therapist that I see when I need. Uh, I have my own coach that works with me. Uh, and so I have that support team. I have a couple of really good friends that I make time for every single week so that we can talk and we used to walk and talk. Now we're just talking because uh, we have to be apart, but really making time to be together uh, with certain people that really support me is critically important. I have come to understand, and I have no shame about this anymore, that if I do not get eight hours of sleep, I am not 
a human and I can eat junky food and I can not exercise and I can be okay. But if I do not get a really solid night's sleep, I'm just not any good. I'm anxious and I'm reactive. And so I have prioritized sleep above almost any other um, self-care activity because it makes the biggest impact when uh, I'm not getting that. And so that's what I would say to anyone listening. Usually within sleeping, eating, exercising, and like social relationships, those are like four cornerstones of wellness. And we they tend to go right out the window when we're stressed. Uh, and I would pay attention to those four and how they change for you. And usually for each one of us, one of those things is, uh, has a massive impact on our ability to function. Uh, so for me at sleep, I really prioritize that. And I have a really solid cutoff time for work at night. And I work from home. So I'm, I'm with all of you right now that are you know, challenged by figuring out boundaries when your office is in your home. Uh, and so I have over the years come up with some pretty um, solid transition rituals to help me shift out of work and make sure that I have that evening um, where I'm not um, stuck to the computer all night long. I, I don't know what the biggest stressor for me right now is if, you know, I had to pick one, but of course we're all different and, you know, changes in our home, work, concern for family members, our pets. I mean, straight up, uh, probably my biggest fear is the fear of getting sick. Uh, I know this is all about like flattening the curve, but I just, I don't want to get it. <laughs> and the other thing for me is the news. Like I get done with, you know, a long day of work and I go get caught up on the world. Like, and what is the world right now? Well, it's COVID news, it's numbers, projections, and of course, like the politics of it. So then to wash that down, I hit social media and get caught up there. So Twitter and Facebook, and I know it's not good. So please tell me to stop doing that. Yeah. So I have a whole, I teach a class on boundaries and we do a whole section just on technology and setting internal boundaries with yourself about what you're going to allow yourself to do. So the point of me sharing that is that it's a struggle. We, I don't know anyone that doesn't have some, uh, it, some sort of challenge with this. What I would say is that there's a lot of um, areas, um, shades of gray between how we typically use social media and taking a full sabbatical. Uh, there's a really great book called Digital Minimalism. Uh, I'm trying to remember, Cal Newport, I think is the author. And it's really about being very intentional about what platforms you use and why you're using them uh, and making sure that, um, that the, that platform is the absolute best way to achieve whatever your goal is. Uh, and so for me, I, you know, I really changed the way I use Facebook. I, I no longer really use it personally. I changed my whole feed. I unfollowed every friend I have. Uh, I unfollowed like 3,000 pages and my feed is now maybe two or three uh, very affirming pages that help me. And that's all I see when I open and I just go to my group and I have a private Facebook group and I'm just there. And that is using that tool to its best uh, effect for me. And then I have shifted to being more intentional about connecting with my loved ones off of social media through text through writing letters because I'm an old fogey. So I've been, uh, I actually use a pen and I write cards uh, and being on the phone and having more calls with them. I will say that this is a time when social media is wonderful and I'm really thankful that 
we have this way to connect with each other um, under these circumstances of physical isolation. But, you know, we still want to be really mindful of how we're engaging with it. So, you know, is it something that is energizing us or helping us to feel supported? Or is it just um, keeping you hypervigilant? And is your adrenaline spiking every time you log on? You know, how are we using it? Paying attention to how we feel uh, and being really deliberate about maybe the, the boundaries we want to set around it. Like I do not check social media after a certain time at night because I know it will wake me up uh, in a lot on multiple levels. Uh, and so you can still be really connected and have boundaries. It doesn't have to be either or. You can be there and set limits about how you want to engage and who you want to engage with. But it's really challenging. I think that you would really like digital minimalism as a, some ideas for how to still be online, but do it in a really thoughtful way. I, COVID is just, it's a whole new thing, right? We've got these massive life changes. At the beginning of this episode, we heard from Amanda Paris, who's with Southern Pines Animal Shelter in Mississippi. And she talked about how her new life, her now life at home, is offering the space to be able to have her realize and feel the trauma from the last 10 years of her work in this field. So, you know, given what we're hearing from people like Amanda, who are maybe for the first time ever feeling this, what is COVID-19, I guess, meant for you and, and your work? What are you seeing? So what I am enjoying about this, if I'm allowed to say that I'm enjoying part of COVID-19, is that... Um, it is helping people to come to this work more urgently. So we all were struggling with compassion fatigue or stress or anxiety before this hit. And this just blew it open in such a big way that people are more willing to, I think, show up and engage in the work uh, that we need to do to be well. And so I'm, I'm running a series of four webinars right now uh, where we're working on building these skills together. And the engagement is so much higher than a normal class. People are really ready and willing to do this work. And what I am sharing is not all of that different from what I would share normally. The really great thing, for better or for worse, one of the good things about being a helping professional is that anything that would have helped you with compassion fatigue under normal circumstances will help you with coping with this crisis. And many of the things that people are experiencing during COVID-19, um, the way that they are responding to being exposed to this traumatic event mirrors compassion fatigue symptoms. They're not that different. And so everything I would normally teach in my classes, I'm still teaching. We're just shifting the examples so that they're um, applying to the circumstances we're in right now. But there's no tool that I am sharing that I would not share under normal circumstances. And I'm excited by people's willingness to really give it a try. Uh, and to what's happening right now in particular that's interesting is I think we, under normal circumstances, live with a sense that we have more control over our lives, that things are more certain, uh, that we actually can, you know, uh, control what's going to happen. And right now, it's so obvious that we have no control over what's going to happen next, that there's um, so much uncertainty. 
not that we have no control, we're still going to wash our hands and social distance, but that we have much less control than we would like to think that we do. That this massive uncertainty is opening us up to look at how can we be present and tolerate this level of discomfort. Uh, and that discomfort is always there, even when COVID-19 doesn't exist. But this is magnifying it on such a big level that I think people are willing to open themselves up to different ways of doing things because the, their old ways of just staying busy and working through the pain, it's not working right now. Uh, there's just too much. It's too big and there's too much uncertainty. So I wouldn't say I'm happy that this happened, but it is allowing people to um, go places that maybe they weren't before because they were able to just keep it together enough. And now we've been pushed and people are willing to show up for themselves in a way that they haven't before. And I'm happy for them that they are here and ready to invest in themselves. So Jessica, this work uh, has changed. And by that, I mean, you know, we're not what we were 10 years ago. And to reference uh, Amanda and the work down there in Mississippi, they had a 10% save rate when she started 10 years ago. And now they're one of the best in the world, a 98.6% save rate in 2018. So that's better, right? We're saving more animals. We should be healthier and happier has that changed compassion fatigue? Do we see fewer issues? Yes. And it's also uh, opened up new issues that we probably couldn't have foreseen. So what I see in my classes more and more every year uh, is, are folks coming from shelters that uh, have very low euthanasia rates. However, the the few euthanasias that they have to do are heartbreaking for them, typically because they have cared for the animals much longer and have poured their hearts into trying to help them with those medical or behavioral challenges. And then, you know, it doesn't work because we don't have control over the outcome of our efforts. And now it is an animal that they have a real relationship with and they feel like they have failed. I also see a lot of struggle around um, workers disagreeing with what is considered a safe animal to place in their communities. And so there are shelter workers who are experiencing a lot of stress around working with animals that they don't necessarily feel safe around. Uh, and so that is a a more acute trauma that some of them are experiencing, having to handle animals that really may not be safe. And so this subjectiveness about what is safe and what is not, and that conversation, it's a very challenging conversation to have. And across the board, it is every shelter I work with, almost every person, that behavioral component is one of the number one areas of stress uh, for people individually, but also within the team, the dynamic, the arguments that are happening, the hurt feelings around these decisions, whether the animal is placed or not, it, kind of separate from the outcome, it's the decision-making is very challenging. And it is so emotionally charged that it is, uh, we're causing a lot of damage to each other around this. And so, yes, lower euthanasia rates is really great. I'm very happy that that happened. 
but it, I would not say that we're experiencing less compassion fatigue. It just has shifted um, so that some of the factors that contribute to our empathy or compassion fatigue or burnout or ethical distress, I think that's really what we're getting at with euthanasia is a lot of the ethical dilemmas. All of that remains present. Uh, and so it's, um, yeah, it's really complicated. And this is what we didn't address for so long as the emotional complexity of doing this work. Okay, so I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute, and, and that is the old way of thinking, measurement of what makes a good nonprofit. So a you know one of these five star gold measured charity by whatever platform you want to pick, it's generally you know like ninety cents of every dollar going to programs. Like that's the best. But in truth, if you're ineffective in your work, like that 90 cents is meaningless. It's just more money on programs that aren't actually helping to achieve the mission. Conversely, putting in, say, 70 cents to programs that are effective is far better. And then that 30 cents, you know, you're investing in the things that will increase the effectiveness such as your most valuable asset, which is the staff. Like we are not expendable, right? So to that end, being healthy, like this is as important as an employee's ability to write a direct mail piece or knowledge of animal behavior. Yes. So I'm off. I, we need to professionalize this profession. And with that, so if I can put on my well-being hat, right, from my perspective, it's and we need to be creating healthier work environments for these professionals to work in. So we need to be getting paid more. We all need to have mental health coverage. We need to be taking a page out of some of the other social services who offer, you know, reflective supervision and peer debriefing. And, you know, we're not we're not doing much to create really healthy working conditions. And so what it gets me excited about anything that professionalizes this profession is with it comes an investment in those people, right? We want to keep talented people healthy and well, and that means addressing um, how we invest in our staff. And that's not something, you know, what I see instead is people really celebrating staff members who have worked three weeks straight and haven't taken a day off, right? And so we, we celebrate again, this idea of being really selfless. Uh, and, and then what I see in my work over and over again are people showing up saying, I want to take care of myself, but I will get in trouble if I leave on time. Or the rest of the, my coworkers, you know, um, whatever, you know, throw shade my way when I have boundaries. And so we really need, this needs to be a bigger uh, this needs to be more than an individual's efforts to be well. It's like scrubbing yourself up, getting clean, and then jumping into a dirty pool. And, you know, every day you're going to drag yourself out, you're filthy, and you waste all of your energy just trying to get cleaned up again. But what would it be like if the pool was clean, <laughs> you know, and we all came in and we didn't come out exhausted and dirty at the end of the day? We need the environment, the system to support us being well. And so I, I'm really excited because any investment in the profession will require us as organizations to step up and create a, a hospitable container for those professionals um, to be well, for their welfare, for their five freedoms to be in effect when they're on the job, you know? That's Jessica Dolce. 
She does offer training. She has an entirely online program. It's at your own speed, but it is a year-long engagement, so it's real deal learning. She also has information and resources on her website for no cost, including a webinar specifically around COVID-19. We've put that information up on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. That's bestfriends.org slash podcast. So how are you feeling? Are there things that you've put into practice that are helping you through this time? Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. That's podcast at bestfriends.org. I'd like to thank the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.